Normally, on the first Sunday or so of the year, we have uh, had a practice of talking about the church, that is Lion and Lamb Church, looking at the mission statement, our priorities, etc. Because that was done last May, May 20th to be exact, 2007, I'm not going to do that this morning. If you haven't been here long enough to have heard that, the church mission statement is what's specifically the topic of the teaching from that date. You can go online to lionandlambchurch.com and listen to that if you like. We are going to talk about the church, though, this morning from a different slant, uh, not related to mission, but kind of bigger picture, uh, the church, that is the church universal, the church in the United States, and our church as well. This may be uh, quantified as Bible light this morning. Uh, I don't think you guys, I hope you don't hold this against me. Uh, You know, typically I'm teaching out of the scriptures. I want to teach topically this morning. And frankly, most of what I'm sharing with you comes as the result of reading two books in the last year. And both of them have had a significant impact on me. And that's what I want to share with you this morning. Both have to do with the church and also with us as individuals and how we as individuals impact the church as well. So this may be a little rambling. It's not biblically centered as the teachings would normally be, but I think the topics and the message is important enough. We we need to hear it and we will frame it a bit in the context of the scripture. The first book that I want to mention, and I'll spend most of the time on it, though it is the second one I would recommend if you have a chance to read either of these that you read, not the first, but the first one is called Shopping for God by James Twitchell. The subtitle is How Christianity Went from In Your Heart to In Your Face. Uh, This is a book I picked up at the library. By the way, our library has tons of great stuff. Go through the new book department, which is what I do, look at the religious section, and that's where I found this one. James Twitchell, if you look at the dust jacket, he's this smiling, bespeckled, grandfatherly type individual. And he's a professor in English and advertising at the University of Florida. And as you read the book, it's a very winsome book. He's very congenial in the way he writes. He's a very good writer. Uh, he is not, by your definition or mine, he's not a Christian. And so he's not an evangelical, for instance, looking at the church from inside and kind of assessing it. He is on the outside looking in, and he's on the outside looking in as someone whose expertise is in the arena of advertising, marketing. That's the way he's looking at the church. Having said that, though, he, uh, he's a very ironic writer. He's not grinding an axe. He's not trying to really talk down to the church. And he is much more sympathetic than I might have thought somebody writing from the outside looking in would be. Uh, so it's, it's an easy read. It's, it's a very uh, well-written uh, book and something that I uh, really appreciated reading for myself. He is, by his own admission, I thought this was interesting, he calls himself an app atheist. You guys ever heard this term? I assume it's a combination of apathetic theist, an ap atheist. He describes himself this way, someone disinclined to care all that much about his own religion and an even stronger disinclination to care about other people's. This is a a phrase someone else coined and defined, and he's using it of himself. Having said that, though, the fruit of his work and his book is pretty hard to... uh, speak against because it's, it's factually and objectively written. 
he did his homework for this book, and that means that he went to the churches he writes about. He was on their email list. He talked with the leadership of these churches. He sat with the people who attend these churches, and he talked with and interviewed them as well. So he's not, he's not someone who's just putting the church down from outside. He's been in it. He's visited it. He's listened to it. And then he's assessed it as somebody who looks at marketing. The theme of his book, uh, he sums up in a quote by Richard Halverson, who was the former U.S. Uh, Senate chaplain. And Halverson said this about the church. In the beginning, the church was a fellowship of men and women centering on the living Christ. That is, early in the history, that, that's what the church was defined by. The church moved to Greece, that is, in history and in time, and it became a philosophy. Then it moved to Rome, where it became an institution. Next, it moved to Europe, where it became a culture. Finally, it moved to America, where it became an enterprise. That is, when you hear enterprise, think business. It became a business. The church, in other words, Halverson said, and I think, he's, I think he's right, the church took on the culture or the worldview of each setting it moved to. And that America, the West, was no exception to the rule. So if Greece was a society of philosophy, the gospel tended to take on what we would today call Gnosticism, this thing about knowledge and secret knowledge. And of course, Rome was a place of laws and institution, and the church, as you know, in the days of the Roman Empire, took on the form of an institution. And in America, the church takes on, he argues, the role of a business, what he calls an enterprise. He looks in his book at small churches, rural churches, big churches, urban churches. The place he spends the most time, though, is on uh, what he calls and what we call today mega churches. And so that's primarily what I'll talk about this morning. And it's for a couple of reasons. You guys know, uh, in America, we like things big, and we tend to measure success by big. And mega churches have become the gold standard for the church, a successful church model in the United States today. And it's why he spends a lot of time, uh, he spent a lot of time visiting them, and he spends most of his time talking about them. Mega churches are churches that have at least 2,000 people in attendance every Sunday. Their average is at least 2,000. You guys know that's a big group. That's a big church. Uh, there's maybe Topeka has a few, but not more than that. In 1970, so that's a few generations ago. 1970, there were 10 mega churches in the United States. 1970. 2005, there were over 1,200. And he says that based on statistics, one new church reaches mega status every few days. So mega churches, these super large churches, they have become the standard for success and for the church models in the United States over the last few decades. And it's funny because, you know, as time goes on, uh, mega becomes inadequate because what do you call the biggest of the big? So now just like computer memory storage, now we've got the giga churches. And the gigas are those who average at least 10,000 people per Sunday in attendance. So mega's not big enough now. The biggest of the big are the giga churches. Now, on one hand, and maybe especially if you're in a mega or a giga church, you could look around at these numbers and you could come to this conclusion. This is great. 
there's revival in the land. Uh, the church is growing. Conversions are taking place. Discipleship and transformation is occurring. You could, you know, you could look at the numbers and say this is all a good thing. And and uh, b- before I forget, because I probably will later, let me offer a disclaimer. In all, everything that I'm telling you, I'm not against big. I'm not against music. I'm not against anything that is amoral in and of itself. But ask yourself the question: Why are we doing what we are doing? What's the object? What is the goal of what we're doing? That's kind of what it comes down to in the end. We talked about this as a family last night. It's not that big is bad. It's not that small is good. It has nothing to do with that. Why are we doing what we are doing? Where's our motivation? What's our guidance? And to what end is it moving? That's the deal in the end. On one hand, we could look at the growth and the development of the megachurches and we could say this is a good thing. The problem with that conclusion, though, is all the other statistics that look at Christianity in the United States today. What do they tell us? They tell us there's not a dime's worth of difference between those who claim Christ today and the larger population in which we live. We've, we've looked at these before. We've, in fact, I think maybe a year ago we looked at this. Statistically, the George Barner uh, reports, anybody else's statistics that you look at, Christians, those who name the name of Christ, those who inhabit our church, megachurches, gigachurches, statistically divorce as frequently as those who don't call themselves Christians, give very little more than those who don't call themselves Christians. In any of the important ways in which you'd quantify lifestyle, transformation, because, of course, being a Christian means you're different than the world. Christ saves you out of it, and He begins this process of transformation. Well, if you've got the rise and the growth numerically of all these churches... But at a transformational level, you're the same. What does it tell you? The numerical growth has no indication, no necessary correlation to what God is doing as opposed to what man is doing in the world today through churches. And you guys know, if man can pull it off, it's not necessarily what God's doing. God does God's business. If you and I can pull off something, it means in, simply by its definition, it's not spiritual, it's carnal. It doesn't mean that we don't invest and God doesn't use us. I don't mean to say that. But if we can pull things off in our own energy, with our own expertise, it's not God. And I think to a large degree that's actually what the church has rendered itself down to today. So um, Twitchell's observation is, the church in the United States is just another business. It's just another business. And it's a little hard to dispute much of what he says. Uh, think of this. If you look at megachurches, and by the way, this is something I've studied for 20 years at least, and I've gone to the conferences, and I've had the discussions, and we've talked about this as a church in the past, about if we wanted to grow, this is what you do. And I can tell you this is what you do, because this is what all the experts, church growth has been a business and a movement for the last two decades at least. There's a formula. Follow the formula like any other business and start a successful church. And it goes like this. Do your market research. Find out who your clients are. Do your market research. Have an advertising plan and a budget. And you advertise like any other business. Uh, These are interesting. You must have a professional quality Worship group. Sean, I don't think we're there. And, and it, it has to be as good as what anyone hears, as good as ours is, by the way. It has to be as good as what someone hears on the radio 
or goes to a concert to hear. And one of Twitchell's points, and I think this is important, and I think to some degree this is where all of us live, he says one of the things that churches sell is rapture. This sense of transcendence. And so the music becomes important because, you know, if you've been to a secular rock concert, and I went to tons of these when I was young, there is a sense of rapture. There is a sense of transcendence because there's an emotional sensory overload. And part of that occurs through the loud music and the emotional appeal of the music. And I love music. No problem with music. No problem with loud music. But Twitchell says this is part of what the church sells, and it's why the, these megachurches all have professional quality worship groups. It's part of the product. It's part of the sense of rapture. The words are different than would be sung at a, a, a different a secular concert. But it's the emotional sensory overload that he says is part of the product that's being marketed by the church. That's why you have to have this professional quality music group. By the way, he's talking to these guys who run the sound at these churches. Bill, I thought this was interesting. They boast that they've got better sound equipment and better light shows than the Rolling Stones. Literally. Because that's their competition. In the market, that's their competition. That's who they're competing with. So you have to have this highest quality musical product to market. The talks are talks, they're not teachings, typically. And if I go over the line, if I'm too negative, forgive me. Uh, they're, they're not teachings, and they typically are not biblically centered. They're bible light as, as my teaching is this morning. Uh, they don't, they're not uh, teachings out of the Bible. They're felt needs. So I want to come in and I want to talk to you about things that are where you live emotionally compelling to you. There's nothing wrong with that either. But if it doesn't go further than that, it tends to become entertainment and feel-goodism. And that's also part of what he argues they're packaging. And then typically there's a, there's a small group venue for everything under the sun, from fishermen and motorcycle ridings to single parents. I mean, you name it, on and on and on. And the megas have become, and the gigas have become cities within themselves in which they provide every good and service you could imagine. Part of this, too... He does say this, um, like a business, the bottom line is important. And in many of these churches, they aren't just selling rapture in the service. They're selling products from the time you enter the door. So they're selling, they're retailing everything they talk about in the, in the forum. Uh, when you enter the door, you enter a retail arena where you can buy every book. You know, you start wondering at some time, when does what I'm doing become something that the church is helping others with? Versus, I'm a business, the kind of thing Jesus chased out of the temple. And I, and I think he argues, and I think we're, we're way, way, way past that. But the megas at some, at some level, and, and by the way, I know there's, there's godly people in, in, I'm sure, all of these churches honoring Christ. It's not that I can look at one church or one person and say, that's all bad, it's all good, etc. You know, we all bring mixed motives. But again, looking at the, the gen, how is it generally characterized, I think that's my concern. The megas tend to look like big box retail stores. They're big, like Barnes & Nobles. Or they're like McDonald's. In other words, we've realized that the American market gravitates towards big and towards big in every, every area that you can think of. And so 
we all start producing the same goods and services because we know it sells. And in this market, in this culture, it's what you can be successful at. And so you could go from one mega to another and they'll all pretty much look the same, different building style perhaps, but they're all basically following the same formula. So you could go from one to another kind of like a McDonald's. And it's because at the end of the day, they're taking their cues from the market. That is, I do the survey, I see what people want, and I sell them what they want. You know, the problem with this is it's backwards, isn't it? Because that's not the church. The church, the church is one foundation. The song we just sang, we're supposed to be taking our cues from a different source, not the market. But that's typically what happens. It's a cultural standard, not a biblical standard. And the church ends up looking like the world around it. It becomes another variation on the same theme. In fact, you know, we just finished a study in Revelation. The church in the West, the church in the United States, looks like the church of Laodicea, the last church Jesus writes to in Revelation chapter 3, which is wealthy in all the ways that don't matter. The churches are wealthy in all the ways that mean absolutely nothing in the sight of heaven. And I think in general that's where the church has come, has landed in the West. Now, we might sit in the small lion and lamb and say, we have no aspirations of mega. We're not studying the market. But you know, the truth is any of us can be motivated by the same things. It really is where are we taking our cues? What, not only what are we doing, but why are we doing it? And to what end are we doing it? So you and I, in a small church, we can be motivated by the same deficient motivations that I think are, by and large, motivating the development of mega churches. which is, I feel successful if I'm in a big group. I feel better about myself. That's not Christianity. Or I feel better if I can give someone else a sense of an emotional uh, high, let's say. And that's fine as far as it goes, but that's not spiritual transformation. We could be motivated by the same motivations as any other church in the United States, which would be deficient whether we're in a small church or a big church. It's really where are we getting our cues? Are we being transformed to look like the world or are we being transformed to look like Christ? Scripturally, I've got a couple verses and that's all, but the truth is we could go on and on and on about what God's call to the church is. But here's just a couple. 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul writes to Timothy, he's at the church in Ephesus and he says this, I'm writing so that you'll know how you ought to conduct yourself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth. Paul says to Timothy, the place you serve is God's house, not yours. It's God's house. It's God's directives. It's His place. It's the place He defines, not we define. God defines it. And Paul tells Timothy what characterizes the church of the living God is truth. It's the truth. It's not what's convenient or popular today. It's the truth as defined by the Scriptures. We don't determine truth by taking a marketing survey. Paul tells Timothy, the church is God's house, ruled by God, overseen by God, and is to be characterized by unchanging truth. That's the goal. That's what should characterize the church today. Or think of this, Titus 2.14. 
Paul says, Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Purify, that's transformation away from what we were. Transformation, not towards the world, but away from the world. Zealous for good deeds. That means we're characterized by the transformed life in which the investment of our life has changed to the things that matter to God, not to the entertainment value we see in something or don't see in something. Or Jesus to the disciples in John 17, verses 11 and 14, where Jesus says that His followers are those who are living in the world. And by the way, this in anything I'm saying, it doesn't mean that we become monastic. We're not isolationists. Jesus says we're to be change agents in the world. But He says in verse 14 that we're not to be characterized by those who belong to the world. This goes back to the Sermon on the Mount. We're to be salt and light. It's not that we remove ourselves from the cultures. It's not that we don't make the message of the gospel culturally relevant. But it's that we don't become transformed into the image of the culture itself. That's the difference. And our lives are to be characterized by this transformation to the kind of things that God finds valuable, not to our own entertainment. Think of this too. The term church, you know, when you translate the, the Greek, it's ekklesia, and that's eklege. Uh, it's, it's out called. So we'd say the church is a called out group. If the church looks like the culture, we've entirely missed our call. Entirely. Because we're supposed to be the people who are defined as those who've been called out from the larger group they started in. So by very definition, by the essence of what the church is, we shouldn't look like the culture around us. We should be transformed into something that resembles Christ, not the polluted culture we live in. You know, Acts 2, when Peter preaches to Jerusalem, he says, be saved out of this perverse culture. You know, 1 John, John says the world, that is the cosmos, the system that you and I live in today, by which by and large the church is deriving its direction. John says the cosmos, the world we live in, it's passing away. If you and I take our cues from the world that's passing away, we're investing in sand and dust. It's all wrong-headed. We're starting from the wrong starting point. Each local expression of the church is supposed to be a place of unchanging truth where people are honoring Christ in transformed lives and good works. So we can have all these numbers that look statistically important and entirely miss our calling defined by heaven and by Christ. The church is called to be, by the way, key word this morning, unique. You know, we say God, unique means other than, different than. God is ultimately in the universe. He's the only thing or person or entity who's ultimately unique. There's no one else, nothing else like God. But as those who are reborn in His image, we are to be unique also. And in this transformation process where we become more like Christ, the funny thing is we're transformed to look more like Christ, but in that transformation towards conformity, we actually gain in the fullest measure possible the unique qualities God means us to have. So when we're transformed into the image of Christ, we become as unique as God means us to be. When we're transformed by the culture around us, we become like everything else around us. We don't become unique. We become the same as everyone and everything else.
success for you and I and for the church is to become the unique people and the unique church God means us to be. It's not to be like everything and everyone else. It's to be, it's to be unique in the ways God means us to be unique. Along this line, Ephesians 2.10, Paul says, we as Christians and as the church, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. We are God's workmanship, which means God wants to put His stamp on us. The forces that impact who and what we are, God says those should be His forces, not the world's. And as those living in the world, we feel tensions and pressures to be conformed to look just like everybody else. God says, though, we're His workmanship. We're a piece of work. He's working on us. We're the pot. He's the potter. However you want to think of that. We're supposed to be taking God's image because we're His workmanship. We should be unique in God's image. Or also Romans 12, 2, Paul says, Don't be conformed to this world. Most of us as Christians try to be conformed to the world. We don't want to be different. We don't want to stick out. We want to look like everybody else. We want to be safe in the huddle. Paul says, Don't be conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. As we gain a hold of the truth in our mind, that changes us into the image of Christ. Don't be like everyone else around you. Be transformed. The other book I read, and frankly, the one that made the greatest impact on me and which I'm giving somewhat short shrift this morning, uh, is a great, great book. It's a little deep. It might be hard to wade through, but it's well worth your time. It's called The Listening Heart by A.J. Conyers. A.J. Conyers was also a professor. He taught at Baylor in the theology department. He died a couple years ago of cancer, a fairly young guy, I think still in his 50s. That's one book on the things we're talking about. The other one you could read, written at a more popular level, is called The Call by Oz Guinness. This book, I think, is two or three years old now. Also an excellent book along the lines of what we're talking about this morning. Conyers' title to the book, The Listening Heart, I'm reading the book and I'm thinking, uh, I don't get it. Why is it called The Listening Heart? But it comes down to this. Conyers says that as Christians, we respond to God's call. Our life is characterized by a response to God's call. So that we should have what he calls a listening heart because we're supposed to live life as those who are responding to God. That is, we don't choose everything for ourselves, but we respond to God's Word, to His call, to His leading, to the ways He's gifted us, to the places He's put us, etc. So that Conyers says to be successful in this life, we have to have a listening heart. So we listen to what God's saying and then we respond. He talks a little bit about history, and one of the things he says is that the world typically tries to render everyone down to the same, functionally the same, what he calls equality. One of the the things he talks about is the Industrial Revolution. You know, before the Industrial Revolution, if a potter made a pot, every pot was unique, right? Because it it was a separate piece of work done by a unique person. When the Industrial Revolution came along and we devised the assembly line, Uh, people became, in a sense, cogs in a wheel. Because now you're kind of like a part of a machine. You're doing one aspect in an assembly line fashion. Well, he said this translated into culture. 
so that there became this tendency, just as a, a process produced the same thing, part after part after part, people and culture started taking on this same thought that we should be interchangeable, we should be equal. Feminism at some level makes the same argument, we should all be equal. Well, his point in this is, if you're equal like everyone else, you've lost your value. You've lost your call. You've lost your significance. If you and I are interchangeable, if you're gone, there's no loss. If I'm gone, there's no loss because you just plug in another identical piece. Conyers said this, and this, you know, all of us are at different places at different times in our life. This book changed the way I looked at my life entirely. It changed the way I looked at Lion and Lamb Church. It gave me hope for the future. And this, this was the key line in the book for me. He says, If we're all equal in every way, one will do as well as the other. But if we belong in different ways and for different purposes to the same body, then our gifts are needed and our lives are valued precisely because we are different. Let me read that again. Our gifts are needed, our lives are valued precisely because we are different. You know what this does for me? If I'm different than you, carnally, it makes me fearful and I'm, I'm insecure because I'm not sure if it's okay to be different. Or if I look around and say, Dan's successful because Dan does things a certain way. Well, then I might say to myself, well, I've got to be like Dan because then I'll be successful. But I'm probably not like Dan. God probably didn't make me like Dan. So if, I, if Dan's my model, if being like Dan because Dan's successful, that becomes the model... I have to give up whatever God made me unique in to become like Dan. When I do that, I lose my value. And I don't mean intrinsic value made in the image of God. I mean functional. So Conyer says it's the way we're different from each other that matters, not the way we're the same. This makes sense. Guys, this gives me hope for me and for you and for this church. And for other people, you know, if you're wacky, uh, that's okay. If that's the way God made you, that's a good thing. If you have a gift of service and not of teaching, a spiritual gift of service, and not of te- you shouldn't try and be a teacher. You should use your gift of service. This is transformational. I just think we are, our thought processes and the culture around us tends to make us like lemmings. We want to be like everyone else. We want to look like everyone else because we think that will make us successful or it removes fears or whatever. Conyer says the opposite is true. If you give up your unique qualities, you're giving away the way God means to use you and bless others. God doesn't want you to look like everyone else. God doesn't want this church to look like every other church. This, this can revolutionize the way you look at life, your life, your investment, the church, whatever. We don't have to look like another church to be successful. In fact, anybody who comes here for any length knows we're not like other churches. Well, I might start thinking that's a liability. But I read this and I, and I remember, no, it's the uniqueness that makes us strong. That's the thing God will use. There's lots of other great churches. There's lots of other great Christians. It doesn't demean anyone else. But it elevates the unique ways God makes us as individuals and it elevates the unique ways God calls us as a church. We shouldn't look like everyone else individually. 
we shouldn't look like every other church because that's not the way God's wired us or called us. To have a listening heart is to respond to the call God has on us as individuals and as an individual church as well. Robert Frost said years ago, the best things and the best people rise out of their separateness. I'm against a homogenized society because I want the cream to rise. If you guys have never been on a farm, you might not know this, but if you see fresh milk in a gallon and it sits, what happens? The cream rises to the top because it's different. The milk fat's different from the rest of the milk. Homogenized milk's okay. It's just milk. But Frost said, and God says in his own language, he doesn't want the church and he doesn't want us to be homogenized. He wants the cream to rise. The distinctives about you and me and the church should rise. We shouldn't take our cues from each other in that sense or from other churches or certainly not from the world. We should take our cues from the person and the call God has for us and the church and the call God has for the church. Let me wind down with Ephesians 4. If we're a Christian, we share tons of things in common with every other Christian in the world now and through history and those that will follow after. And in Ephesians 4, Paul talks about commonality and diversity, and he does so in the same context in the same chapter of Ephesians chapter 4. Paul says this, related to unity, related to what we share in common. He says there's one body, that is one church, universal, one body of Christ. There's one spirit. You were called in one hope of your calling. There's one Lord, there's one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. In other words, Paul says, as a Christian, we share this common foundation with every other Christian and as a church with every other church. We have all these things in common. It's what holds us together. Verse 7, though, he starts by saying, but... Those are all in common. That's all great. It's all necessary. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gifts. And then Paul goes into a list of spiritual gifts. The ones he highlights in Ephesians 4 are leadership gifts. But he says these leadership gifts are meant to equip every other person in the church to serve the unique role and function God has given them to fill. One hand, you've got all these things in common with every other Christian and every other church. On the other hand, within that unity, Paul says there's diversity. And he's uniquely gifted different ones to fill different roles. That's what we should be aiming at. We kind of take the unity things uh, for common, hopefully. But having those things in common, we then must exercise the gifts and the callings and the personas, etc., the places God puts us individually. Because at that level, we're not supposed to look like everyone else. The basics we share in common, everything else God has wired in, diversity. So in the church, in your neighborhood, in your relationships, it's the ways you're different. It's the ways you're unique that God most especially will tend to use you, not the ways you're like everyone else. At the end of the day, it has to do with who are we taking our cue from. If we're taking our cues from the world, if as a church we're marketing ourselves so we're acceptable to the world, we're moving in the wrong direction. We lose our uniqueness. Or as individuals, if we're trying to fit in and look like everyone else around us, 
we're losing the unique way God's called us and the unique way God means to use us. So for 2008, let me exhort you, encourage you, call you to ask God, what are my strengths? What are the unique qualities God has given me? And what does it look like for me to put those in use in the church and in the world? And as a church, we need to ask ourselves, Lord, what are the unique ways you want to use us as a church? We're not called to look like everyone else. We shouldn't. What are the unique ways you want to use us? In, in 2008, if we can do this, a year or two ago we talked about salmon swimming upstream, not dead fish floating down, but live salmon, vigorous salmon swimming upstream to reproduce. If we can take our cues from God, find the ways He's uniquely called us, we will be swimming upstream. It is countercultural, but we'll be taking our cues from God where we should be, we'll be transformed, and we'll be investing in those works God's called us to invest it in. If we do less than that, guys, you know, we should just go play someplace else. Why be religious? Why bother? I would, my goodness, I'd rather go out and have all the fun in the world I could and die if that's all life's about. But if there's reality to Christ, and if there is an eternity ahead, why would we mess about playing in the waters of the world? when God's put the oceans in front of us. You know, God makes uh, every snowfall, you know, there's billions of snowflakes coming down. And you know what? No two of them are alike. Every one of them is unique. And God's taken that same care with you and I and with the members of the church. No two of us are alike. And it's how are we unique that I'm thinking we need to look at this year and say, Lord, what are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? In what ways am I uniquely gifted by you to operate in this world today. Let's pray. God, save us from mediocrity. God, save us from a worldly attitude of uniformity, of finding safety and security by looking like everyone else, of doing what others do. God in heaven, I pray that the work of your Spirit is so big and so powerful in each one of us that it's too big to contain and that you constrain us and shape us and conform us to the image of Christ, which for us allows us to be fully the unique people in Christ you mean us to be. Father, liberate us from mindsets that are too low for your goals for our lives. Help us to honor and worship you. Help us to live as those who are connected to the living God. Father, help us to live as those people who are called out of the world to something bigger and something better. Help us to be cities on a hill, light slide held up, that the strength is in our difference, that we are to be lights shining in the darkness. Lord, help us to not give that up this year. In Jesus' name, amen.